Merry Christmas. There it is. Man, there's so much to be excited about. Like, JR was in the choir. Yeah, he loves the attention. I'm serious. That got me really pumped. Seeing all the families together, people singing, Gina and Eliza, Ethan wore sandals. It's Christmas. Like, come on. And you're here. You're here at church. Man, it's a good thing. We're watching from home. This is great. I'm excited that we're here. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. It looks like this. If you could grab it, we're ultimately going to be in 1 Peter, um, which might seem like a non-Christmas place to be, but that's okay. We'll get there. Uh, If you have the YouVersion Bible app and you get into the verse of the day, um, it's the the most read uh, version of the Bible all over the world. People download this by the millions. Um, uh, Craig Groeschel and his team, people put it out uh, several years ago. Uh, I recommend it. There's a lot of cool things on that app, a lot of devotions, all sorts of things. But I like to open it in the mornings and read the verse of the day and kind of force myself to slow down and think about it. I thought it was cool about, oh... I want to say eight months ago, but it might have been years now, but they start adding videos with the verse of the day, if you're familiar, so you can kind of hear someone talk about it. It kind of just gives you a moment to think about like, man, I want to, I want to be in the Word today. And in our house, we use the phrase scripture before screens. We try to think through when we wake up in the morning, let's first spend time with scripture. It kind of is weird to say scripture before screens when I'm using a screen to look at scripture first thing in the morning, but hey, you know, I'm a millennial, okay? So get off me. We're baby steps. We're getting there. But uh, I want to read the verse of the day from there, and I'm going to read the next verse too. It's Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is a very Christmassy verse, so don't rule it out. Take time to breathe this in, to read it. Here we go, church. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what the prophets hoped in, that Jesus would come, that there would be one who comes to make all things right. And if you've been joining us this year as we've read through the Bible, or if you've kind of been hitting or missing, or if you haven't, you're just like tuning in for the first time, like we've been reading through the whole Bible. And this is the story, the hope that God would make things right, because we've made a mess of the place. We've just mucked it all up. It's it, it, everything. Look around. I mean, the world's kind of messed. So what, what's going to make this right? And the prophets said, hey, these things are going to come. Savior's going to come. Christmas time is such a strange thing for several people, for, for all of us. Uh, it's a strange thing to preach about because it, the older I get, the more I appreciate different parts of the Christmas story. And, and I think when I was younger, there was a lot of uh, making sure we understand the gift of Jesus versus all the gifts that we'd receive. And I'm so thankful that, that um, my mom is, is a love language gift giving person. And, and so we received tons of gifts as kids and all that. But there was a big fight to remember, man, there's a bigger gift than this, right? And these gifts represent something else. You know, there's that tension. So as a kid, that was my big thing. Um, I've been noticing other parts of the Christmas story that I think don't get as much attention sometimes um, that stand out to me and that kind of led to us landing on on First Peter. You know, the Christmas story has has some rough stuff in it, too. In fact, I was going to uh, it was in blue in my notes. and I already missed the question, but I was going to ask, like, uh, let's go ahead and do it. If you could just mention parts of the Christmas story, what are some things or characters you remember? 
Mary. Mary's a part of the Christmas story. Fantastic. Good job. What else? Who else? There's wise men. Yeah. Shepherds. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Remember when we did the, ah, I'm, I love preaching on the shepherds. We don't get to do that this morning, but that's okay. Angels. Yeah. Herod. He's the bad guy. The baby Jesus. That's right. Fantastic. Yeah. So here's the thing. We see our manger scenes and we see, we sing these songs and we forget that the story is still wrapped in suffering. And that's the tension of Christmas time. Is it not that, that we are all to some degree, we might be faking it until we make it because we, we want it. We want the joyful hallmark, great moments, but we also have the reality of suffering amongst us and there are hard things. And, and come Monday, you might still not have that loved one with you. You might still have to take your child to, to a, a broken family because you're separated and, and it's a dangerous situation that tends you out. Or you might still not have a baby that you've been praying for and longing for. Or you might still struggle with your spouse. Or you might still have a job that's terrible that's crushing you. But it's Christmas time. You see the tension? Let's be real. Come on. Like, I, I don't need to pander for this. I don't need to force emotion. I'm pretty good at pathos, but I don't, I don't need to force that right now because it's here. It's among us. And I'm sorry to be the Debbie Downer on your Christmas. Uh, maybe that's why some of you didn't come because you know I'm a realist and I was going to talk about it. But here's the truth. This is a hard time for several people. And it's also a joyful time. And the story is meant to be that way. And I think that when we read the story as it's written, we start seeing things as we grow up and as we think about it that are a little different. Um, if you've ever been around an infant, and breastfeeding women, that's not a great time to saddle up donkeys and camels and head to Egypt. That's a terrible time to travel. Um, I can't imagine when we have our our baby coming, we've got our fifth baby coming early next year. Praise God. Get pumped. I'm pumped. Uh, I can't imagine like, hey, we're just going to start driving through Kansas very slowly and just pull over randomly for you to breastfeed. It'd be terrible, horrible. Who wants to go to Kansas? You know what I mean? And so there's, uh, there's clearly tension in the story, but also why, why are they running? Because of the bad guy. Uh, one of my, uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs, uh, I'll mention my favorite here in a minute, but one of my favorite, that's not actually a Christmas song, but I tend to sing it and play it on guitar during Christmas time. Uh, it's a Rich Mullins song. Raise your hand if you're a Rich Mullins fan. He has a song called My Deliverer. Raise your hand if you know that song. What is the first line in that song? Yeah, yeah. And what's in the first verse? Joseph. Joseph took his wife and child and they went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. What a terrible way to start the Christmas story. That's just not the like, away in a manger. Joseph took his wife and child. They went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. Right? I love it though because it invites the real tension. I mean, and maybe that's just me, but that's the real tension I live in during Christmas time. That that there's there's still suffering, there's still struggle, but there's also this power and beauty, wonder, like mighty, wonderful, Prince of Peace. Ah, but we're also trying to escape the rage of a deadly king. I think we all intuitively know that Christmas has the suffering in it because some of the great Christmas hymns have it. A lot of times it's in the second or third verse, so we miss it. But my favorite Christmas song, who knows my favorite Christmas song? It's Oh Holy Night. I, I can't see him here. I told Howard earlier, and so I didn't want him to ruin it. It's Oh Holy Night. Um, the second verse of Oh Holy Night, he says, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. What's next? Chains, Chains shall he break. For the slave is our brother, and in his name 
all oppression shall cease. There was a recognition when they wrote these Christmas songs to celebrate this Christmas time that we needed saved, that there is slavery happening amongst us and that all of us are connected through this body of death, this sin, this slavery, this brokenness. It ripples to all of us. The, the, the cancer treatments that are never ending, the, the bad phone calls about children still getting in trouble, the tension marriage, this tension is on us. But in his name, all oppression shall cease. And so when we sing this song, it's not just a beautiful holy night because there's a baby in a manger. Wow. It's also because that baby will end all oppression in his name. Uh, last night, Nathan sang, it came upon a midnight clear. Right? Is that what it's called? Thank you. Uh, he sang a verse that I'd never heard in that song. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm still processing it, but it catches this whole tension of, of the harshness, the suffering. It says, all ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours. Come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. The angels are singing, peace on earth. The time has come. It's here. This hymn acknowledges that th times are hard. We understand that this is hard. Matthew 1, 21 through 23, the angel appears to Mary, uh, or to Joseph, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, right? We've talked about this a lot. And he will save his people from their sins. What does Yeshua mean? God saves. You will give him the name God saves because God saves will save his people from their sin. Who's saving? The baby or God? Yes. That's the point. That's the tension of this verse. How's that for like a 45-minute sermon we did last year all in one sentence? You're welcome. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us in Jesus. As we start landing on 1 Peter, I want us to acknowledge that that we all experience suffering and struggle of some kind. Everyone in this room has some kind of suffering or you're closely connected with someone who's suffering or you're ignorant, isolated, and trying to hide it. Those are the options. And sorry if I just called you ignorant and isolated and trying to hide it, but it's just the truth. The truth is that we are suffering or we know people who are suffering and it's a reality of this time of year. And I think it's worth talking about it. I'm so thankful that the Bible has great places like First Peter, like the Psalms that teach us to lament, that teach us to think about suffering. If you could open to First Peter, we're going to read right from the beginning of it, verses 1 through 3, and slowly talk about it. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray that you'd guide us now as we read your word. As we wrestle with this tension that you've given us, Father, of, of, of joy and celebration and excitement and also tension and longing and, and anxiety that you will come back, that you will make things right as we wait, as we still experience suffering. God, I pray that you would teach us to hope in you. I pray that you'd speak to us now as your word bears its weight on us and that your spirit would guide us. Amen. First Peter 1. One and two, uh, real quick, just so you know, I think we got a slide for it, but First Peter is a letter from, who wrote it? Peter, brilliant, Peter wrote it, right? Uh, and it's to comfort Gentile Christians who are suffering under Roman oppression. It's important that you understand that it's Gentiles because all of a sudden the language he's using becomes really beautiful and inclusive because he's using Hebrew language to talk to Gentiles and he's inviting them into something that's really powerful. Uh, how, does, how does Peter want to comfort them? Here's a quick synopsis. 
of all first Peter. He wants to comfort them by reassuring them of their identity and purpose. He says, hey, you want to be comforted? You need to remember who you are. You need to remember your identity. So first Peter one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter's immediately using Jewish language to connect to them. He calls them what? Elect exiles. What do we know the word exiles from what? All the, the exile, thank you. Hey, there's a Bible scholar. Yeah, all the times in Scripture where we have these, these exiles, these tensions where the Jewish people were, were pushed aside, they're marginalized, they were, they're under persecution. And he's saying, hey, you know the God that chose Abraham? You know the God that chose the family of Israel, you Gentiles that are out of it? Like all of us, for the most part, are probably Gentiles we were pushed out. He said, you know that? You are chosen by God. It's not just for them. You are chosen. And to hear Peter say that, man, we could spend a lot of time on how beautiful that is. But he said, you know who you are first? You're elect exiles. You're chosen by God. You're chosen by God. And I left this out of notes. I was going to say it. I'm going to say it anyway. If the words elect and chosen create all this theological tension in you and all of a sudden words like Calvinism and reform and Arminianism and all that just starts bubbling up in you, stop it. Stop it. Because here's what you need to know. We're not going to argue over all those things. We're not going to decide all the things we believe about Reformed theology and, and Calvinism. Stop. The Word said God chose us. And if you want to hold on to your little bit of Western philosophy that says, oh, no, 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 I have some culpability. I made a decision. That's fine. You can have some little box that you try to categorize that. But Scripture says He chose you. And if you want to say that, well, well I made a decision to come down the aisle, who led you to come down the aisle? Who led the person to preach? Who led the Spirit to move in you? Why are some people not coming down the aisle? God is doing something. And I can't, for the life of me, as much as I've said and read it, be able to parse out, well, this is this, and this is this, and this is exactly how conversion works. But here's what I can tell you. You are saved by faith alone. And God is calling you to know him. And I don't know all the boundaries of when you can reject that and when God can pierce through all that. But I thank God that he pierced through all the times I've rejected him and brought me to him. And so for all your lack of knowledge of how you figure that or all the ways you think you have figured it out, God has chosen you and he's calling you to him. And you can accept or reject that. And this moment is another moment where his grace is speaking to you based off his love to say, come to me in faith. I want to have a right relationship with you. He has chosen you. And you can choose to accept that or you can choose to reject that all the way to hell. Don't let your pride stay in the way. Don't let your understanding of what you've got to figure out. Paul says you're elect exiles. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Peter wants them to know right from the beginning, God knows you. He knows your suffering. He knows you. He knows you. He knows you. He knows that this is the first Christmas without mom or dad. He knows this is the second or third or fourth or fifth one. He knows that this is the first Christmas where families separate. He knows that this is the first Christmas in 11 years where you have to deal with the tension of having a Christmas Eve service and the next morning having to do a Christmas service and the next day maybe having to work. He knows your suffering. He knows the divorce struggles in your family and your life. He knows the broken families. He knows the cancer treatments. He knows that you still haven't gotten the news from the doctor that you want. He knows that you're engaged and things are coming up and the pressure sits on you. He knows that you're having a baby and you're terrified that maybe you aren't a five 
family person. Maybe you're going to mess that up. He knows you according to his foreknowledge. He sees you and he knows you and you've been chosen by him. Right from the shoot, Peter wants you to know. Do you want to know how you're comforted in your suffering? Remember who you are. Remember that there's a God who sees you that's chosen you and he knows you. The foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus, for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter wants them to know that their suffering is the the Spirit sanctifying them. And this gets complicated because on the one hand, we all understand this basic sentiment that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Huh? Rub some dirt on it, boy. You'll be okay. Right? This, this understanding of toughen up, hard things are hard, and it's going to make you better. We understand that in a basic Western idea of getting hardened by the world and tough and, and learning that, hey, you probably, like we have we, with kids. We say, with all our kids, we say all the time, hey, you're treating this like a level 10 thing. Like, I'm sorry someone took your Legos out of your hand, but do you understand that no one died? No one's bleeding. And in fact, no one has uh, some disabilitating disease now because of this. You just lost your leg over a few seconds. And so maybe it's only a level two or three thing, right? We have to have this language with our kids because we understand that as we grow, we mature and things give us different perspective. And Peter wants them to know, hey, isn't it possible? In fact, it's certain that God is taking these things in your life, these sufferings, these hard things, and he's using them to sanctify you to grow more like Christ. And it's important to parse that out because on the one hand, you could say, oh, that's just some ridiculous carrot that Christians dangle in front of us just to say, say, oh, just, just trust in Jesus. Don't worry about it. Suffering, everything works out for good, man. Everything works out for a reason. Peter's getting very specific with it. He's saying, no, no, no. God is able to work all this out to sanctify you to be more like Christ. What, is, what did Christ teach us? Greatest commandment. What did Jesus all of the Old Testament summed up in this. What was it? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Side note, that means what it means to be human. If you are a human, that means you are a heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed to love God and love others. And so whatever things you do in your life, if they're not forming your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if whatever things you're doing in your marriage aren't forming your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if whatever things you're doing in your job, your hobbies, if they're not formative in your heart, soul, mind, and strength towards being someone in love with the Lord, in love with others, then it's probably stupid what you're doing because it's not who you are and so Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord and to love others and Peter said hey these sufferings that you're going through they're sanctifying you to be connected with Christ to be more like Christ and the more you read this letter he keeps weaving that idea in and out you're identified by King Jesus you understand his sufferings through your sufferings he's the one who took all your sins on the cross so that you could be forgiven Peter wants you to understand that these sufferings are being used for something greater. And now it creates this tension, though, because then some of us say, what about the sufferings that that aren't getting better? What about things that are just bad? How in the world could this be making? Man, I love you. I know you. Some of you, if you were honest and you were just wanting to stand up in your anger right now, you'd say, yeah, tell me how this is being used. Tell me how God's using this for his glory to make me like King Jesus because it's terrifying and it's damaging other people and it's awful. You tell me. Right? These things are real in us. If Jesus has called us to love him and to love others and everything is forming us towards that, is it possible that at the very least your suffering is drawing you to a dependence on him who is the only hope? 
I can't work out all the ways a sovereign God is pointing everything for good or pointing everything for his glory. What I can work out is that when we read Genesis and we see all the junk that happens in Genesis, it ends with the author emphasizing a main point from Joseph that says, Genesis 50, 20, what you intended for evil, God used for Good. And we talked about this tov and ra all through scripture. God creates good things. They're called tov in Hebrew. And then we insert evil things. They're called ra. And we said for several times this year, that'd be a great Christian cuss word to insert in your life. Ra! It's great. It's biblical. It means evil. It's great. Start throwing it around. Ra! It's a great thing to say, right? Ra, ra, ra. Works, right? And so tov and ra. And we see all through scripture, God trying to work out good. We arrogantly so bad want to be able to connect the dots and figure it all out. What Peter's saying is, no, 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 this is who you are. You've been chosen by God. He sees you. He's working all these things out so that you could be more like Jesus, so you could connect with Jesus. And so that means, church, if you know someone who's suffering, the role isn't just to say, all things work to the good. Trust in Jesus. It also means that we do the work to love them. We do the work to show them Christ's love. Because Jesus didn't just go around spouting off good ideas. He healed people. He spent time with people that, that shouldn't have been spent time with. He showed them grace. He suffered for them. He died for them. He carried a cross for us all. And so when we're trying to understand this tension of suffering, like what do we do with the sufferings of people? How are these things working towards Jesus? Our role as both the sufferer and those who are going to suffer with is to look to the Lord and to love Him and to love others. And that means sometimes that we welcome the graces God's given us. It's so hard to talk about this in one message because we don't want people walking away thinking, oh, okay, so just trust in Jesus and I continue to be abused by other people. Just trust in Jesus. I never need to take my medication again. Thank God for counselors. Thank God for psychologists and psychiatrists. Thank God for medications. Thank God for doctors and social workers and people who work at Coyote Hill and people who work with CMFCAA and people who are on the board of all these social organizations that are trying to make sense of following Christ in the world to say, we don't want to see orphans and widows suffer. We don't want to see children in harm. We don't want to see people get, continue to get messed up with the chemical imbalances in their brains. So we want to find medications and ways to dial it in. Of course, we pray for them. Of course, we lay hands on them. But we also understand that God's given us medication. And all these things should be pointing us to the love the Father has for us in loving Him and loving others. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. In our church, in short, we say, look to Jesus. This is what Peter's saying from the beginning. He's saying, look to Jesus, who He says you are. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say living hope. This is why in our church we say look to Jesus. Say look to Jesus. When we say look to Jesus, we're not just saying, ah, don't worry about it. It's no big idea. Forget about it. It's not some random platitude. It just makes sense. It's the understanding that He is Emmanuel, that He is with us, that He said, I'm with you always, that He is the, the life, He is the way, the truth, and life, that He is our living hope. Peter wants us to understand that He's our living hope. And there's all these sorts of things that we put hope in that don't really live, they don't stand the test of time. It's really great all your accomplishments in high school and all the cool things you did with graduation or your, or your degrees. 
But those things don't last. Your job, your promotion, your money, your 401k, your boat, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your job. Are these really the things that we hope in? Are these living hope? Because I know a lot of really successful people I read about who are dead, and they're gone. And the things they did pass away. And eventually someone else's name gets put on the building. Someone else sells their stuff. Everything you own is future garage sale stuff. Your legacy is forgettable at best. Sorry. Peter reminds us that, hold on. We've been born again. We are chosen. We are born again because of Jesus into a living hope. Jesus is our living hope. Not our spouses, not our girlfriend and boyfriend, not the really cool gifts that we got this year, not the vacation we're going on. Jesus is our living hope. He is alive. You don't have any religious leader in all of history that died and rose again. Insurmountable evidence that Jesus appeared to people after he resurrected. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That should matter. And if it doesn't get you fired up, maybe you don't get it. Or maybe you're misinterpreting the sufferings around you because Peter wants you to understand whatever suffering you're going on, the junk in your life, you should be able to identify that Jesus is alive and say, my identity in him is in him. But as we say, our forgetter works really well. We're God amnesiacs. We're identity forgetters. And isn't that what evil wants? Think about how suffering works. Suffering in general isolates us. I was talking to someone on the uh, Christmas caroling bus recently, uh, how interesting it is to me, how like different families approach suffering in different ways. And my family tended to approach it as just like when someone got sick, literally everyone in my family ended up in the ER. It was like an ER party. And then some people I know when they're sick, I don't know that they're sick until like I'm going to pray with them because they're dying. And it's like, why do we, sometimes we hold these things close chest and that's not a commentary on, oh, you should just be completely open with everything. You should be shocked. Boundaries on that. I do know we can't suffer and celebrate together as the word tells us to in 1 Corinthians 12. We can't be one body if we're hiding. And what, isol- or what suffering tends to do is it isolates us. It puts us looking at ourselves, thinking about how, man, I think my life should be differently. I think my world should be differently. It isolates and pushes us away from other people. How many of us have said the phrase, no one understands? You should understand the way I'm going. You don't understand what it's like to be 18, mom and dad. You've never understood. You don't understand what it's like to be dating. You don't understand what it's like to be dating in your 40s. You don't understand divorce. You don't understand. No one understands me. I'm all alone. This will never change. This is what suffering does to us. We forget our identity. We start putting our identity on these ideals of, well, if this gets better and this gets better, if, if, if we figure out all of grandma's possessions and we fix, fix up her house and we can sell it. Put yourself in the situation, your own suffering. It isolates us and it forces us to focus on these things. Peter steps in and says, look to Jesus. When you remember that your identity is in him, you have a living hope. Peter has all these things he lists over and over and over of ways, identities they could be. I would encourage you to read 1 Peter this week. Maybe read their family. And look for identity statements. He says things like elect exiles, living stones, holy priesthood. You have a spiritual house. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's possession. You're sojourners in Christ. You are Christians. Peter has all these phrases to remind them. You are in Christ. That's your identity. Don't let your suffering lose sight. And he ends by saying... The devil roars like a prowling or prowls like a lion, 
looking for someone to devour. Peter's very concerned that they're going to forget their identity, get focused on themselves, that evil's going to draw them away. How does that work in your life? Are you suffering? Look to Jesus. Do you know someone who's suffering? How are you loving them and loving the Lord in such a way that you're drawing them to look to Jesus with them? Suffering with them, as Scripture would tell us. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Remember, righteousness is a relationship word, that we would live in a right relationship with Him. You are identified not by your sin, not by how you've made mistakes, not by your divorce, not by your broken family, not by the fact that your wife passed away, not by the fact that you've got so many kids, or, or the fact that your family's constantly arguing. That's not your identity. You're identified by having a right relationship with God in Christ. That's who you are. How does that change your life? He himself bore our sins in his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you believe that you're healed? Or has evil drawn you so much to circle your suffering that you're alone, you're isolated? Evil wants to pull us all away because it's a lot easier to destroy us and kill us when we're alone. It's a lot easier to believe in lies when you're alone. But when you're in the body of Christ, when you're in the church, it's a lot more difficult to swallow lies. It's a lot more difficult to get away with the silly things we tell ourselves because we have people who will speak truth in love. Say, hold on, is everything really hopeless? Have you thought about all these good things? Have you thought, maybe someone loves you, say, have you thought about how selfish you're being? Like, thank God for his body, for the truth that's spoken. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus is the living hope for your life? Is that the drumbeat of everything you do? He is with me always. He is my living hope. Those are the carols, the hymns of your life. That is your identity. You can't make it on your own. Everything else you put your hope in will pass away. How do you deal with your suffering? You look to Jesus. You remember your identity in Him. He knows you. He's chosen you. He's your living hope. If you want to know what to do specifically, maybe you're like, man, I'm kind of in between. I think it's interesting we start talking about these things, and we've got these in-betweens, do we not? Not every day is suffering or celebration. In fact, the vast majority of your days are, meh. Like you just, it's forgettable. You've eaten really great meals in your life. You've eaten really terrible meals. But the vast majority of your meals, you've forgotten, right? You probably couldn't tell me all that you ate this last week. Why just because we forget? In fact, we joke about that sermons in Shepherding Council. We say like, hey, uh... Adam preached on that in Acts. What did he? And then we look at, oh, no, actually, I preached on it, didn't I? We completely forget. I preached and I forgot about it, right? You guys have heard over a hundred sermons from me. Man, you do the math, it's potentially over 200 sermons from me in the last several years, right? Can you remember 15 of them off the top of your head? Can you remember what I said two weeks ago? Like, come on. Like, this is our life. We forget things, all these things. Most of our life is just this in-between. That's exactly where evil draws us. So what do you do? What do you do with the daily life? Okay, I'm not really suffering, but I'm not really like, woohoo, Christmas, woo. Peter answers that, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. I love this. Church, if you're a believer in Christ, listen up. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. You have to start it like that because that's a big deal. He wants you to hear that emphasis. The end, the end of all things is at hand. How's that for the start? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, 
Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Man, I wish we had time to unpack that. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We know that because love is, tell me, what is love? Commitment and sacrifice. That is what we define love as. Love is commitment and sacrifice. We know that because Jesus was so committed to us. He was so committed to his Father's will that he sacrificed everything for us. And you know your understanding of love is based off your commitment and sacrifice to whatever thing you love. That's why I can love uh, tiramisu and love my wife in the same breath because I make quite a bit different sacrifices for tiramisu than I do for my wife, right? And he's saying love covers a multitude of sin. He's pulling at what he just said about Jesus. He himself bore our sin on that tree. Keep loving each other earnestly since love covers multitude of sin. Show hospitality. Greek word, it means to welcome outsiders. Make outsiders insiders. See those people out there? They need to be like people in here. Basic understanding of hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Some of you need to hear that. Just stop there. Without grumbling. Come on. As each has received a gift. Three, four weeks ago, Nathan talked about this. We've all received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Because of Jesus, because your identity is in Him, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in Him, listen, here it comes. This is the closing. This is the end of the sermon. The big, the big or- orchestra's coming up. This is it. This is what Peter says. Pray. Above all, love each other. Above all, love each other. Be hospitable. And guess what? You're gifted. And so you should serve. Not every one of you can play violin. Some of you should never touch a violin. But thank God we have people who play violin and they serve. Amen? Thank God we have people who sing in the choir, even though that might not be their first choice, so they can sing with their son. Amen? Whatever you're gifted with, you're supposed to serve. If you don't know your gift, start serving. That's not an excuse not to serve. Because his emphasis in those verses, the second half is all about serving. How are you showing hospitality in your meh moments? You, you suffering? Look to Jesus. Remember your identity. You celebrating? Celebrate because you look to Jesus. What about all these in-between moments? pray. Love each other earnestly. Be hospitable. You are gifted. Serve. Because everything is for his glory. Everything you do in your life, mark, mark this, everything you do in your life is either for his glory or for some shadow glory, some some faint projection that you're pretending holds some value and weight, but actually is all going to pass away. So evaluate all your life on how this trajectory for his glory. Well, how do I know if it trajectory is glory? Well, is it being hospitable? Is it loving people? Thank God for lists like this in Scripture. Listen, I don't know the response you need to have for this, and I'm sorry if you wanted a completely different Christmas message this morning, but this is the one the Lord led us to preach, and so here we are. There are people who are suffering. There are people in this room next to you who are suffering. There are those of us who are pretending like we're not. There are those of us who are holding it too close to the chest because we don't want to talk about it. There's a lot going on. But as we believe that we're one body called in Christ, we remember that Peter wrote this to one body. He wrote it to the church, and he's telling them, remember who you are in Christ. You have a living hope. God sees you. He knows you. He's chosen you. And he's given you things to do to obedient in Christ. Above all, love each other. Be hospitable. Pray. 
serve with the gifts you have. I don't know what those things the Spirit's moving in your heart to land on. I do know that there is a thousand distractions for today and this weekend. I could list so many ways my heart's gone astray in the last 48 hours. I can list so many things that I could be tense about today or tense about yesterday. So many things I'm distracted about for Monday. So many selfish things. Man, I just wanted ages. Man, remember when I was 20 and I could just sit and play video games all the time and drink rock stars and never have to think about anything? We get all these selfish thoughts in our head. I know there's tons of distractions, but I know that the Spirit brought you here right now. If you're watching from home, God is trying to speak to you. How are you opening your hands and looking to Jesus? That might mean you say, man, I'm just not, I'm not living in, in the gifts he's given me. I'm not serving. I'm not being hospitable. I've never given my life to Jesus. He's not my living hope. I'm going to be standing right here. Adam's going to be standing right here. Keith's up here. Jimmy's up here. If you want to pray with someone, if there's something on your heart, don't let the distraction of Christmas morning pull you away from God speaking to you right now. God brought you here for a reason. If you're suffering, pray. If you know someone's suffering, grab their neck, love on them, and pray with them. Because God's called us to action. He's not called us to an in-between life. Look to your identity in Jesus. He's our living hope. I'm going to pray, and we're going to move to, uh, to worship, to have a time response. If you need to come forward, whatever God's moving in you. Maybe you don't know. You say, I need to talk to somebody. I, what do I got to do? We'll pray with you. God brought you here for a reason. Let's stand. We'll pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for, thank you for your word that reminds us that you know us, that you see us, that you're with us in our suffering. I pray that your spirit would pierce through all the distractions, all the things here that would keep us from knowing you, from looking to you. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would cast out any evil, any selfishness, any fleshly thing that would prevent us from responding to you. God, show us the response that we make now as we look to Jesus. Father, please, as individuals, as a church body, teach us to look to Jesus. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for choosing us and loving us. Guide us as we worship you as we respond to you. Amen. If you need to talk, come pray.